0: Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people, we have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing. I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'd like to do an intro today to my guest, Brenton Mac McKinnon. Brenton is an amazing elder and combat veteran, writer, poet, community activist. We had a long, very paced conversation exploring many themes, and I want to make sure for people who are uncomfortable or are triggered by conversations around war, prison, stories of sexual violation, to perhaps choose not to listen to today's show, because there are those conversations, not terribly graphic, but real, and they're addressed. This was a Very powerful conversation with someone who loves writing, understands the power of writing, understands the conflicts in the human soul, and can speak to them from direct experience, having walked through them in his own life. So I hope you enjoy this show as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with Mac. Without further ado, Brent Mac McKinnon. I'm glad we're taking this time. I think it's important for all of us to have real valuable stories, authentic stories around encounters with stress. And I know you've uh, lived a long journey and uh, traveled many places. And I know we'll get into some of the harder aspects of, of some of those travels in time. But luckily, we also know each other from poetry,
1: Right. It's been a pleasure to uh, hear your
0: secrets. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good. I'm glad. I'm glad they're enjoyable. Um, And uh, the little bit of the background for our connection is uh, a a mutual friend, Ryan, and you've been writing poems together for a while here in Marin County.
1: Yeah, um, Ryan and I met initially at the Pen Men of Marin's poetry group which met for three years. We published an anthology, and that started about eight years ago.
0: The Penman Marin isn't your first encounter with writing or doing work around Uh, uh, literature, writing poetry, books. You've you've written several books yourself, and uh, books of poems, books of short stories.
1: After I acquired a master's degree, much of my work was in English as a foreign language second language, and then I taught undergrads in uh, graduate school in composition, and that was the first in-depth journey I had with teacher-student and trying to motivate people to write. But as you know quite well, most people like to talk about themselves, and if we assign a topic, tell me your story, specifically... Um, an episode they will do it that's why memoir is so uh, popular and such a big seller and there are many memoir classes particularly for the elderly because they want to leave uh, something personal of who they are rather than grandpa and grandma for um, their own children and grandchildren who are we really and who were we as children? Little, little known stories, as most Americans are in the here and now and don't look into history of any sort as far as I can tell. So, uh, yeah, that was my first uh, total immersion, two sections of uh, composition writing for undergraduates. It was like pulling teeth because even then, that was 1980, 81, uh, students were moving into the beginning of technology and using texting and uh, the the prelude to uh, doing everything on a phone or a computer. Rather than Doing what you're doing right now is writing with a pen on a piece of paper. Hallelujah. I wish my grandchildren would have uh, cultivated a a passion for both reading and writing. I did my best, but uh, their peer groups swallow them up and they begin to lose contact Mm -hmm. with the pen and the pencil. Mm
0: -hmm. What's your concern about that in a practical way?
1: Well, uh, at one time, my uh, elders, when I was a child, thought that rock and roll was inspired by the devil, so uh, every generation has its uh, transitionary period till we find out exactly what we're going to be when we mature. And for the most part, uh, it'll be different and uh, dynamic and more inclusive and universal and... On the other hand, quite impersonal, even though we broadcast the popular view of ourselves on the internet, family pictures, and look what I did, mom, stuff like that, rather than anything in depth. This is why uh, your podcast uh, should be popularized and touch more people.
0: Appreciate that. Um, I want to stick with that thread a little bit longer in terms of the value of pen and paper and writing. Um, Generally, like, you know, if there's a young person listening, you know, to somebody who was born in 1943, you know, it's almost 80 years ago, you know, you've seen a lot of change in society. And pen and paper is. What is the value? What is the relationship with writing that you got in your generation and through your experience that you would like, you know, even in the face of Snapchat and TikTok and all these trendy um, technological apps? Um, what, what is it you wish for the, your grandchildren and the young people to know?
1: Well, uh, pen and paper is an intimate physical experience. Totally unlike pushing a keyboard or um, texting on a phone, and the forms of expression are abbreviated. Uh, back in the day, we would call it telegraphies, where you had you had to pay by the words. So when you sent a telegraph, they were very short and to the point. Versus um, the near-duplicate now, now developing and texting. And um, as a consequence, vocabulary is disappearing, creativity is disappearing, and um, that can only be reestablished through heartfelt expression, uh, through writing, and um, for those of us who are less inclined to share deeply in conversation, for example, we can write, as I mentioned earlier, on a piece of paper. Yeah. But we would never say out loud, even to our best friend, and even mom. But uh, the need is to get it out, express it. Uh, it lightens the load. If that's your goal,
0: uh-huh.
1: it uh, lightens the heart as you begin to develop um, better and better uh, talents and expression of vocabulary and feeling, the feeling state. It seems to be more available through the written word than it is through spontaneous conversations down at the coffee shop or the whole earth checkout line.
0: Seems to me um, with the amount of books that you've written, that's actually what you're saying is also true for you, that it's given you a place to get things out on the page um, that you've been walking with.
1: Right. Right. Uh, my childhood was uh, uh, unusual just as my adult life has been. And maybe they're absolutely connected. But um, I, be- as a child, I became, because of circumstances, invisible. And frequently just a witness to what was going on around me. So I had a lot stored up. <clears throat> and uh, my first Revelation about the written word came in high school when I was deeply troubled. Mostly about girls, probably. (laughs) But um, I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and I'd turn on the light, and I would write down whatever came out spontaneously on a piece of paper, three-hole ring binder paper. Get it out. Get it done. Water it up. Throw it in the trash can, and I was able to sleep. That was a revelation that there was power. There was absolution. There was freedom and release from uh, emotional states that otherwise we couldn't deal with. At least I couldn't. I had no one to talk to. And uh, lots of lots of buddies, but we didn't talk about stuff. We just raised hell. <laughs> so uh, that was my discovery that um, there's a whole universe available to a writer that is deeply connected with reading, because. Other writers are writing books, and if we find good ones and reread them, an access to other dimensions, other states of being, other ways of life, other values, and other uh, adventures uh, are available to us right at home. And that can fill in the gaps of what's missing uh, in the educational system or our private lives or broken families or alienated teenagers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's kind of like, uh, if I, if I would relanguage, what I'm hearing is writing your way to wholeness. There's a, there's an aspect of writing, which was able to, you know, both get the broken and the emotions and the things out on the page that brought peace, but also, um, recreate the self in a way
1: yes recreations uh, regenerations uh, exactly what happens as we let the the devils go because it's our own attachment to pain that keeps the uh, the demons inside and they can't stand the sunlight or exposure and They gradually fade away through whatever form of uh, addressing it honestly, whether it's in your men's group or the retreats I've gone to with veterans and first responders or my work in San Quentin, which is very rewarding because of the sheer reality of the incarcerated soul Mm. and uh, that particular group lasted four years and they were all veterans I'm a veteran I'm a combat vet Uh, I can walk the walk especially in inside San Quentin and they, they know how to read people better than any other group I've ever run into because they have to survive, and survival depends on the ability to decipher what's going on around them at all times. Yeah. So I developed friendships and uh, was able to make a contribution to individuals. And then after uh, some of my my closer friends were released uh parolees and I shared times and visits and road trips together to their family. And there's still one guy left that I uh, see regularly. Yeah. And inspiration, considering all that he's gone through.
0: Yeah, and and there's a couple elements there I'm interested in, but I want to stick with the writing a little bit more and the trans- transformative power for writing in a place like San Quentin with you know people who are dealing with the harsh realities of incarceration and the challenges that come there. What were the kind of things that you saw and witnessed um, in an environment like that in terms of writing, being an agent uh, for change?
1: Well, um, many of these men uh, did not get out of high school and many did not get out of secondary school. And, Writing was something they were no longer familiar with. So um, I had to find devices to trick them into uh, writing anything. So I became very good at that, and everything was uh, writers anonymous. You know, they didn't have to share. All they had to do was write whatever came up. But a lot of prompts and a lot of fill-in and a lot of provocative, personalized approach to what their issues were Mm -hmm. uh, touched them enough to uh, give it a a try. And I think there's a story there in that book about a uh, young black man who hardly said anything And at one point um, I was given a separate room and I invited six men who hardly said anything in the larger group of 30. And I know that there were deep feelers uh, always observing, apparently understanding a lot. So when I got them alone, and they began to find trust with each other, which is very difficult when you're incarcerated because information is power and can be used against you. At the end of that small group, this fellow wrote his story of being ritually raped by his own mother. And he was from the South, and he had killed someone out of anger and gone to prison. That was a short story that he wrote, and it was traumatic to write, traumatic to hear, and traumatic to have lived, and it stunned us all, even in the midst of that violent subculture. That night I went home and I looked online. Black men, black boys in the South, subject to rape by a parent. And lo and behold, it was a common phenomena because the fathers disappeared, the mothers <clears throat> often churchgoers still had sexual urgings and they developed a intimate relationship with their sons and it was a whole pathology and many papers written about it so i picked the shortest abstract printed it out and the following week i handed it to the young man who had written his story. As we were leaving the writer's group for the larger uh, discussion group of 30 men, and I sat next to him, and he read it. And just before uh, the large group launched into a topic of the day, he exhaled deeply. He leaned back in his chair and he said to no one I thought I was the only one. Therein you have the power of expression. He had punished himself because he felt he was culpable in the sexual relationship with his mother. And it wasn't true. It was more common than we want to imagine, and that he was not alone, and he now more deeply understood the circumstances that resulted in that moral injury and the original trauma in his life. So, that was probably one of the more dramatic episodes of self-revelation and writing Although oh, there, there have been many. Mm-hmm. I had my college students keep a journal, which I collected once a week, mm-hmm. maybe 30 kids, freshmen. And after a while, they started spilling the beans because they never saw me look at a journal. And I read them all. And some of the stories in this upper, well, middle class, white, small college in uh, New York were traumatic. And they had never told anyone before. I was an invisible reader. They didn't, when they looked at me as the classroom teacher, they didn't think of me as the reader. And that was I was not a therapist. I didn't know what my role should have been at the time. And so I said nothing. I, all I said was, "Keep writing." Yeah, And they did. And whether or not that is measurable in terms of uh, self-worth and letting go, all I know is the first time they had ever expressed these traumatic episodes in their life.
0: It's very powerful. Um, yes. Yeah. Very powerful stories, very powerful moments um, that you've witnessed. And one of the things I understand from your own journey is you've actually walked with a lot of people through their recovery through trauma and that writing has been a vehicle for that. And I know, um, kind of like the thing, one of the things I appreciate about your short story writing is the way you do tackle the um, underbelly of life in a very real, sometimes humorous, sometimes gallows humor, um, Frank poignant way about these stressful experiences that we tend to, you know, bury um, in different ways. And so I just want to maybe hear a little bit more about your journey as a, a mentor and a teacher and what you found and what you learned by, in addition to the stories you told, you know, witnessing people through the journey of uh, recovery through traumatic experiences.
1: Well, you have to remember, I'm not a trained therapist. I'm just an empathetic listener. And I have tricks to get people to start talking and, like yourself. And in my case, writing. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, everybody, almost without exception, likes to talk about themselves. So you have your tricks as an interviewer and a listener to get, get the ball rolling. And I have mine <laughs> as a writer and a uh, writing f- facilitator. And if you read your participants correctly, you come up with some provocative prompts. There are many generic ones that seem to work well. The last thing I ever thought I'd write about is, if I could tell my dead parents, I would say, you know, and it's just finish the sentence. Mm-hmm. Boom. Go to the next one. Boom. Which is um, in the trade called automatic writing. You stop thinking and you just feel and let it go. And you move on to the next one, the next one, next one. And suddenly you have a body of work that uh, begins to makes sense in a certain way of what the fuck happened to you personally because you've never put words to it before right yeah even in therapy it's often a social experience and you you don't get down to the nitty gritty and i i guess i don't know i never met a good therapist and um But I've met many combat veterans and policemen and firemen and firewomen. If you approach them with respect and empathy, and they know that you've been fucked up too, they'll let their hair down for their own benefit, and they realize that it feels good, and they don't have to share it with anybody. They don't have to go on a podcast or write a book. They just need relief. And I, uh, it, was, it took me a long, long time for me to figure that out for myself. My first book came out uh, 12 years ago. And here's one of the unexpected miracles It was... Uh, what was the title? PTSD and Winning the War Within. Something like
0: that. Yeah, it's Winning the War Within, PS- PTSD, and the Long Road Home.
1: All right, too many books ago. But uh, it's a short book, and it explains how I wound up frustrated with my own culture and wound up in Vietnam. I was looking for the ultimate truth because there was no truth where I lived in, in my heart and mind and I found out a whole lot more than I had ever signed up for some of it very very good such as uh, you might remember that uh, I was language trained in Vietnamese <laughs> and um by virtue of that, through an accident or holy intervention, <clears throat> after seven months of heavy combat, I wound up living alone in a village with Vietnamese. Unprotected. Except by my M16 pea shooter And... Um, my job was to teach English, uh, create projects for the benefit of the village. And there were some sophisticated people there from Saigon because it had once been an operating coal mine. This was up in the Central Highlands. Beautiful. Well, as everybody knows, if you're in a good class with good people or a men's group or a women's Group, and you let it go, good things can happen. So we all became friends. And they valued me. They saw who I was. For the first time in my life, somebody saw me outside of their own projection and need and agenda. And that was such a powerful experience that I didn't want to go to sleep at night because I didn't want to miss anything, and I knew it was temporary. Anything could happen at any time. People were dying all around us. The war intensified in 1967. And that was a turning point in, in becoming human. Of course, psychologically, I later tried to recreate that by running around the world and, and working with other cultures and faraway places and tropical places. And
0: How'd that go? <clears throat> Your attempts at recreation?
1: <laughs> well, I, I looking back. I can see now that when everybody's in danger, it's a tremendously bonding experience. They didn't have a militia. (laughs) They were unarmed people. I probably had the only gun in town. And we were all under threat, and we all cooperated for the better good of the village. To recreate that, I would have had to... Gone to war again in another foreign country and hoped that it might happen. But,
0: yeah, so it never yeah. really happened in the same way.
1: No, but I I tried. I pretended that I could become enculturated. Uh, Peace Corps twice, uh, third world countries, employment.
0: What was it about being under threat with that village and being seen that... Um, <clears throat> I don't know, just that it allowed to happen. I'm really interested because you were talking about certain truths you learned about life that you were looking for and and how you got into Vietnam and your linguistic experience. But um, what else did you learn through that village that was so impactful?
1: Well, I learned that when everybody's under threat, we all tend to cooperate. You know, there are many, many stories of strangers in America Saving, strange, saving other strangers in a raging river or a fire at the risk of their own life. Why do people do that? Well, that's what it was like every day where I lived for three and a half months. And that was tremendously bonding and created a trust that I'd never known before. I grew up not trusting any adult after the age of six. And uh, there I was putting my life in their hands because they could have turned me over to the Viet Cong. I would often sleep in their, their homes at night. It was basically a warning, don't go home tonight. Because I had no lock on the door. I hardly had a door. You know, and mm-hmm. Anybody could have pulled me out at any time. That was the first time I I had a sense of belonging after the age of five. And I felt loved and seen and valued and it activated any talents and creativity and drive I had to serve others. Well, it persisted, but I could never recreate that intimacy again abroad, even though I spoke ultimately five or six languages. You can't become a, an Indian or... A <laughs> Sorry, you, you mentioned uh, our mutual friend. Um, or... Uh, <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, I got it.
1: I got it. Or a Mexican or, uh, you know, you are an American. And um, you bring the whole load with you. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people abroad are optimistic. Everything's great. Well, it's not great. Most of the world suffers in a way that we can't imagine. And... Life is unpredictable and dangerous and highly political. Here, you know, we're talking of suburbia and there's nice trees and a dog came out to say hello and there's food in the market and there's jobs and there's people with clothes on and but it when I returned from the war it was like one huge mask. There was no content. No one was being real. Everything was easy.
0: Uh-huh. Like some kind of charade.
1: Yeah, but of course it wasn't. It was it was real to the people who were being nice and predictable and secure and all living similar lives. Mm-hmm but different behind closed doors, you know. And uh, that's what happens here on this block. Everybody gets along, smiles, chats. There are fences on every level imaginable and um, likes and dislikes, but those are not really possible in, in some other places. If everybody's starving, you got to pull together. If you're under threat, everybody's got to be alert and warn each other. And here we don't have any mutually bonding uh, trauma, other than television news at night. You know. Yeah. Um, that brings us together in a in a deeply tribal way and. We drop our mask and we all chip in. I'm I'm dramatizing, but
0: no, you, I get where you're coming from, and I, I I do want to move towards the combat experience because that was another kind of tribal situation where you had to pull together and be alert, <clears throat> and um, and so I imagine there was other kind of tr- truths that sh- revealed themselves in that condition that wasn't the the trust-based, I'm with the village of people who know how to see me, who know how to uh, make me feel a sense of belonging.
1: Well, combat of course was entirely different. Um, Oh boy. Um, I got to Vietnam when I was 24. The average age was 19. I had life experiences. And resiliency. And was hyper alert before I got there. Which is the reason I'm sitting here now. Teenagers. I noticed over time, and I think you read it in one of my poems. that uh, In the beginning, they wanted to be a hero, like in the movies or a comic book. Excuse me. (coughs) Okay, some some guys wanted to be heroic. Some guys were drafted, and they didn't want to be there at all. And some guys joined to please their parents or family tradition, and they were scared. And over time, uh, those of us who have been there a while, Notice that we couldn't trust the youngsters who wanted to be heroes and the youngsters who were scared. Why? Because when you're in a firefight, you're depending on the man to your left, the man to your right, as a triad of survival hood. Well, if somebody's scared and they can't fire their weapon or the other guy's just blasting away at nothing, it's non-productive and endangers the man in the middle, which was often my placement. Over time, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I began to avoid, you know, I, I had a rank by then and, I could pick and choose who I wanted to go into a firefight with. And I avoided those boys who were scared or wanted to be heroic. And there were very high cal- casualty rates in the, those two groups for obvious reasons. And most of us who, for whatever reason, there were a lot of Southerners who were there who were who could see things and function and stress and uh, survived. Well, most of them. And that was a tremendous lesson about in later life, I thought, well, maybe that's what spirituality is about. You find balance. You find the center of yourself. you find uh, a comfort that is not uh, overly dramatic, it's not victimhood, Is not the need for attention, and you cultivate ways of being that meet your, your needs for meaning, your own drama, quiet drama, and um, find others who reside there and you begin to recognize each other just as I the I and the hillbillies did in Vietnam. I'll trust you, but that's just for right now, you know, at least with the hillbillies. And uh, I understand why, but... No, my my friendships are selective and meaningful and trustworthy and sustain themselves because in some ways we've managed to grow up and mature in a culture where there's not a whole lot of mature people, especially out here on the West Coast. There are pretenders, you know, you make a lot of money, you you have a big house, you have a car, and you strut around, but I learned a long, long time ago, you never know who's who until a bullet zips by your ear. That's a quote from Churchill, who was a real rascal <laughs> and a hero in the... Uh, First World War? Uh, No, in South uh, Africa. Okay. In the Boer War.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Um, Of course, I don't recommend heroism. It's fraught with danger. But um, playing hero is a lot different than being one. These days, by definition, of a hero would be who shows up when nobody
0: else does? It's a nice definition. I want to dial in this experience of of this combat stress and the bullets whizzing by, and um, one of the things in that poem that you had shared around getting this sight, this this ability to start to see things, and I'm really intrigued with the the harsh reality of the combat situation and what it requires one to see in order to survive and and the instinct that emerges or can emerge for some people in relationship to such horrible uh, conditions um so on one hand I'm like God this this war like the brutality of it and of course like what happens with the heart rate what happens with the, the communication what like all those kind of living intense moments and how did you navigate that? But also the secondary thing of this emergent skill set that, you know, I don't know if you knew was there or what it was like to have this site emerge and, and as a way to make your way, um, through, through those, those days.
1: Well, um, after a while, if you're in a, high contact area in wartime, your physical being changes in that smell, hearing, a sixth sense develops 24 hours a day. You become an animal. And, um, you're hyper to use an overworked phrase, and you become deeply in tune with your physical environment. Even now, after all this time, if I hear a gunshot, I immediately know what caliber it is, what direction it came from, and the distance, and whether or not it's a threat. That's unsought, but it's so deeply imprinted in the nervous system that it's just a tiny bit of information you're sorting out at all times in the field. And that begins to become a part of a greater picture of a new form of sixth sense and um, quite frankly, becoming an animal, not in a bad way, but
0: more instinctually, more, yeah, more yeah. in tune with what's actually happening. Yeah, in the alert. You're, yeah. You're not necessarily monster or violent or no, no, something like that. You're yeah.
1: filtering all information at all times. No one ever went to sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, we, We're asleep, but we weren't asleep. We're still... The brain is still monitoring what's going on around us at night. I don't think anyone ever slept deeply. Maybe when we were back at the firebase, but uh, even then we'd get shelled. Um, And even if you become a finely tuned machine of intuition... There is no accountability for the randomness of war. A guy in front of me bends over to pick up a cigarette butt and bang, sniper shooting at him, hits the guy in front of the guy bending over. You never know. You never know. And that's why everything has to be filtered and sorted out before you do anything. So, uh stress, yeah, I mean, it depends how how major the threat is. We were overrun twice and that's pretty fucking major. Um
0: what's overrun mean for
1: Oh, the the enemy has penetrated your defenses and is running through your immediate zone, your immediate area. Helter-skelter, shooting, killing. You are too. And at that point, it's every individual for himself. There's no coordinated response because it's almost impossible in the midst of all the noise going on to give and receive orders because that's a rational part of your mind. In the meantime, the animal is taken over and you're doing everything you can to stay alive in your immediate space. And um, that's another lesson. You know, war is Random. Random.
0: Yeah. I hear the randomness for sure. And I was surprised to also hear the kind of, um, coherence is there as well in terms of being able to see who was more likely not to negotiate the randomness of it. You know, that if you play hero or you think hero in your mind, or if you're overwhelmed with fear and can't, you know, get your wits about you.
1: Some, some guys are not overwhelmed by fear. They're, they've been through it and they know that Common sense will serve them well if they look around and develop some sort of survival strategy in the very moment that it's happening. And they're functional. Others are not, excuse me, functional. And that's because they're never really well trained. They're teenagers, they're... Draftees gone through boot camp, three months of an infantry training, a month of rifle school, and they're off. There's no preparation for the chaos that a young person encounters. Absolutely none. And um, you can see that now in Ukraine. The Russian troops are all immature and draftees and poorly equipped, poorly trained, poorly led. They don't want to be there. I worked with Russians in the Soviet Union in post-traumatic stress. 20 of us combat vets from Vietnam went there in 1988, 20 years after I got out of Vietnam because all the young guys coming back from Afghanistan, the Russians, were screwed up. And through a agency in Seattle that brought former enemies together, the Palestinians and the Jews, the Catholics and the Protestants in Ireland, and did communal workshops um, Created this program and off we went. It was two months and we worked in Moscow and then we went all the way across to the Chinese border and Kazakhstan. Amazing people, amazing experience, mature men that I'd never run into in America, even to this day. Their culture produces men, grown-ups at a far earlier age, out of necessity. And because we had the combat experience and they had it, there's an animal recognition of each other, which meant a whole lot to both of us. And we bonded deeply. We had powerful moments. Uh, healthy moments, humor, meals, vodka, workshops, life celebrations. The following year, a uh, dozen came here to Marin County. I was the coordinator. I found them homes. And they spent a month <clears throat> in the shocking abundance of America. Two guys stayed with me in my ranch house out in Point Reyes. Sergey and Zhenya. They were 21. One of them very traumatized. He had been blown up in a tank. And the second day, I took him into Safeway. These are people who stood in bread lines for an hour to get a loaf of bread. I walked into Safeway. They were in shock. Oh, God. Rows and rows of fresh vegetables. Rows and rows of cold drinks and vodka and milk and anything imaginable. And and then some. And, uh... We had many adventures, we had some public meetings, some spoke in high schools. I took two, two of the guys up to my daughter's high school and one of them had been damaged by fire. His face was distorted and he gave a riveting human presentation in front of 50 high school students that just blew their minds. And another guy got the prosthetic uh, arm. Others got uh, different forms of treatment. And at the end, um, I thought, well, what's the most decadent capitalistic experience I can provide for these guys? And I thought, oh, yeah. Reno. <laughs> So, uh, I started calling around to the PR people at the casinos, and, hey, I got a great story for you. Give us some rooms, and we'll give you all the copy you can handle. And then I called the Vietnam Vets of America up there in Reno, and said, yeah, man, we'll we'll coordinate with you. So, um, we go up, half a dozen cars, a lot of veterans now involved here, Vietnam Vets, and, It's fundamentally, by that time, one big party. So we get to uh, um, Harvey's, or one of those big joints at that time. It was 1989. And we're met by the PR person, who later became my wife. Uh, Okay. Anyway. Anyway. And we are led to the rooms that were extravagant, decadent. Yeah, full of mirrors and fountains, and you know, a couple of them had hot tubs. And oh my gosh, these guys were on another planet, man.
0: They they
1: were they were peasants from
0: who had had war time experience in Afghanistan.
1: Right. And, um, so they each, it was a suite. They each had a bed and uh, a view and the um, manager would walk us in and then they'd hand these guys, uh, a pack of, uh, quarters, you know, the, the tube of quarters. Yeah. And said, okay. Okay. You guys get down there and win some money and take it home to your mom not many of them spoke English, but uh, we had a way of communicating by then. Well, they were, all I can say is they were. <laughs> I thought I was not shocked when I came back to America, but these guys were, they probably thought that's the way every American lived by then, you know, after Marin County. And uh, we had a blast with the Vietnam Vets of America, chapter up there and and me and the other vets, American vets down here stayed with American vets in uh, Lake Tahoe and um, we all came back but it was such a wonderful moment between even the North Vietnamese and, and some of our guys who are not racist have had powerful moments. I could talk about that but um we had arranged train trips coming and going from um, New York City. So we gave him Virginia uh, and Sergey a suitcase full of food, snacks, and a half a dozen bottle of vodka. Well, the communist regime was still at the end of its empire, but still they had a a monitor who was hated, of course, going along with them. Well, (laughs) uh, somewhere around Philadelphia, they all started drinking, and they beat up the uh, <laughs> the communist monitor and threw him off the train. <laughs> and somehow they got back to the airport and, and got on the plane. And I don't know what happened to the communist guy. but
0: Imagine that was rather cathartic for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bet it was, yeah. Uh-huh. And
1: uh, I learned about this later, of course, and because uh, we stayed in touch for a long time. In fact, last year, Zhenya uh, and I, uh, talked on uh, what's that Facebook, face to face and telephone. Like
0: FaceTime or Zoom.
1: Yeah, FaceTime. Yeah, and there he was, forty pounds heavier, half a head of hair gone, and another bottle of vodka in his hand, and two wives, and happy, happy, happy guy. Yeah. Anyway. The thing about war is who It sounds terrible, but who better, who knows you better than the enemy? And I worked a lot with Vietnamese. And uh,
0: What do you mean by that? Who knows you better than the enemy?
1: Well, who knows you better than the person you're trying to kill? Yeah. Because they're suffering the same environment, the same deprivation, the same fear, the same climate, uh,
0: Attack, counterattack, strategy, yeah, pl- planning yeah. that all out. Yeah.
1: And most of those guys were draftees. Uh, the Viet column were. And, um, so I've done workshops with them here in the refugee industry. You know, I worked in the nonprofit world, primarily with, uh, immigrants and refugees, Southeast Asia in the beginning and then later with Latinos. And, uh. It's amazing, you know. What better way to end the or or win the war and by getting drunk with a guy that was trying to kill you? You know, that sounds immature, but it happens and it works. You know, ending the war within. And one of my books is titled.
0: Yeah, there's something essential about that um, reconciliation. It's interesting, I just did a a podcast with an athlete who talked about, after playing at the World Cup, what mattered most to him was the recognition from one of his peers and that that, the highest value of that situation was recognition from the the guys you were going to, in this case, quote-unquote battle with, but into a, a competitive match with. And I'm hearing that similar kind of level of, like, you know, we were in this together, even if we're on opposite sides and a kind of a, the meaning of the recognition between two people who are on the same field.
1: Absolutely. You know, um, this, this goes back to uh, therapy. Nothing happened for Vietnam vets for 20 years. Psychologically after Vietnam. I didn't tell anybody I was a a combat vet for 20 years. And I was working in a federal government program for low-income people, which I loved. And then, accidentally, one of them found out that I was a combat vet and he came to me and said, Mac, were you a, a Marine in combat? And I said, yeah said, how is that possible? You're such a nice guy. That was the public image we had to deal with for the longest time. That's the stereotype. And then, depending on that individual's perception of war, combat, Vietnam, politics, my brother died, it's very, very complicated. It's pretty loaded. So I didn't say much at all for a long time. Yeah. And then... Let's talk about your men's group. There was a time when my peer groups from high school questioned my service and criticized my stupidity because I could have gotten out of it like they did. Well, that went on for about 25 years. And then there was this phenomenon that developed. American men who have never had to be tested, and unfortunately for many that means going to war. The ultimate question is, how would I have done in war? How would have I performed? And then, uh, after 25 years, men are 45 years old, having never had uh, a similar experience where they've been fully tested, whatever that means to po- uh, popular culture. And they began to wonder. And then this whole phenomenon... Uh, wannabes developed and fake stolen valor developed and respect for Vietnam vets where there was none before when it really mattered. It was another bizarre episode of the American public and the American male in the journey of life, trying to figure out what is a man? How do we know we're men through some mechanism other than going to war? That question is still uh, unanswered in many ways and driving men of all ages into questionable decision-making and proving themselves over and over in some way that never satisfies them. But uh, that's the way it is, and until Americans are all under threat at the same time, I don't think it'll ever be uh, resolved for the general public.
0: Yeah defining what makes a man a man
1: yeah I'm sure you guys in your group have talked about this you know fatherhood gainful employment yeah nurturing loving kindness compassion
0: yeah ferocity yeah commitment passion yeah. I mean there's all those you know qualities that are in there um, how how do we make our way through modern life? <laughs> modern pressures um modern dynamics for sure but i um I'm, I'm moved by a lot i really appreciate so much of what you've been sharing um and i'm i'm moved by a couple things in particular or moved towards a couple things in particular and really this deepening this critique of you know masculinity or maturity really in america um that is so You know, I I think you've questioned that a number of times where you say, you know, a lot of what is uh, considered maturity is pretense in a lot of ways. And that one of the gifts that I heard for you out of being in a combat situation, which I have a side question, which is, were you dismantled or were you initiated? I don't know. It sounds like (laughs) both. (laughs) It sounds like there was a bit of both. Uh, And there was some afterwards of dismantling some of the things that happened, but also finding the initiation or or, um, the blessing there. But one of the things that I heard for sure is your ability to decipher who was valuable for you to be with in your life got really clear from the combat experience.
1: True. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here. (laughs)
0: Uh, Thank you. Appreciate that.
1: Um, But to what extent is that skill necessary
0: I, I had that you know, question, too. Yeah, go with that. Maybe, what do you think? The per- maybe maybe pros and if, if
1: you're in business or a manager and you need to decipher who's who, who might be fit for which job or which task, who's a candidate for promotion and leadership, and uh, how much is that instinctual versus... Uh, um, can it be taught? Who am I sitting with? What a- actually is happening between two people? And can you see? Can you feel instinctually? And yes, empathetically, without judgment or agenda, and just experience the soul in front of us. And it'll all be
0: revealed. And when you're in the having in a condition, when you're under threat, and you have to assess who you're with. Um, I, I see the contrast between that and the village story, where you were able to let that uh, evaluative evaluative system down a little bit and just experience oh, the yeah. trust of it right so those are like the two halves of the nervous system where it's like i'm sympathetically like re- ready to go <laughs> and i'm like parasympathetically like i can relax and yeah. Uh, yeah and so i'm wondering when you came back and you both were searching for that parasympathetic uh belonging and and yet you had this kind of deep imprint of the animal instinct uh waking up and supporting you and helping you survive Um, you know, know, the pros and cons of having that system tapped so hard and and how much, I mean, I'm imagining that the writing and the the other work you did supporting and mentoring people through their trauma was one way you were able to um, heal the excessive toxic stress of of war.
1: Well, that came much later. I mean, I was confused, Uh traumatized. Suffering before the term ever evolved, PTSD. Mm-hmm. I see that now clearly, but um, I was returning to the place that drove me away because of the what I felt was a superficial nature of suburbia, white suburbia. And my high school sweetheart had graduated from college and informed me that we were getting married. And I had to ask her dad for her hand in marriage, and he got me a job in an aerospace lab. And it was a nightmare. I mean, it was not my, my dream. of was somebody else's dream. I went to work. And I had to be sterilized in this white pajama. Go into this lab and put things together. I lasted about three hours. And I I told the manager, I said, I got to get out of here. So he followed me out out to the parking lot. And he said, look, man, I was a Marine in Korea. I understand. Don't worry about it. It'll come together for you at its own time. Uh, I had a roommate. Danny and he drove me to the LA airport <clears throat> I had about four beers and I looked up at the departure board and it said Honolulu and I left without a word to anybody and I went to work in heavy construction well, it was a, a boom then all the hotels were going up and I worked with people from six, seven different cultures, Pacific Islanders mostly. And I just wanted to be anonymous. And I was. And just work hard with other men, sweat, curse, drink beer on Friday, and hang out at the beach on the weekend. So that was my I'm not going to say escape, because there was no escape then. But that was my avoidance.
0: Huh. Was there some forgetting that came along with that? Just forget for a while. And yeah, do, I wasn't.
1: Yeah. I wasn't reminded by living in the place that sent me to war. You know. and the locals, the Hawaiians, and I got along fine. Ah, uh, they can recognize human beings. I mean, I'm surrounded by people, but I'm not sure which ones are really human beings. That sounds really. Facetious, but
0: some truth people, in it.
1: people can live and die without fully becoming human in our culture. The mass suffering of others that goes on all the time on this planet creates a different kind of human. I'm not going to say a, more, a wiser one or healthier one, but it's different after you've suffered. On a regular
0: daily basis. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I
1: wandered off there.
0: No, it's good. It's good. Got the dog visiting again. That's good. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, uh, I know there's probably a longer, uh, details and, and moments that maybe were part of your reconciliation of, of the trauma you went through. And, and I don't know if you want to go there right now. Um,
1: well, I, I will say this, <clears throat> There's reconciliation, but and I include uh, a traumatized childhood with with us and war, um, which psychologists call a dual diagnosis. By the way, um, there's. The war is never over. We can only experience and create a ceasefire and make peace with the past and try to become whole and productive and of service, select good friends and hopefully mates, love your children. If they'll let you. I have one child who was conceived in Russia at that PTSD uh, conference workshop by an American woman who was, dare I say, an ovulating and had selected me. But, uh, <laughs> we have a wonderful son who won't forgive me because I didn't marry his mother because I was a mess. Yeah. He was conceived in a PTSD conference with Russians and we're all drinking vodka, you know. I knew it. I I was a good date, but I was never a good mate, you know, I've I've had a number of relationships and, um, but he's okay, we tried to reconcile, but whatever he'd been told as a child, He's angry. He fantasizes that had his mother and I married everything would have been happily ever after instead of the stepfather he wound up with. So it's hard to fight with a myth self-created. Anyway, the disturbing thing is he looks like me. He walks like me. He talks like me, and he has the same master's degree as I do, and he teaches English, and he takes kids to Europe. And uh, yet um, the creation of him and the circumstances, half a world away, and his wonderful mother... It was probably the, the most wonderful woman I ever met, but I, I was broke. I didn't have a credit card, and I didn't have a job. and I only paid for the trip airfare by getting a contract with the uh, San Francisco Chronicle to write an article for their weekly magazine. It was exactly the amount of the airfare. So I figured that was a sign from heaven to go forward. And um, I was still a mess. I was having fun, but um, not a candidate for parenthood or
0: marriage at that point. At that point. How did you um, sort out the mess? In what ways were you able to... That particular mess? No, no that mess is uh, yeah. uh, just the, yeah. the the journey back from the dual diagnosis of you know a traumatic or difficult childhood with a country who sent you to you know in many ways an unjust and dishonest war and 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 the things you had to do inside your own being in order to survive um, and then come back to a, a, a world that, for 25 years, um, look down upon what they put you in, <laughs> you know, and the, the the country put you in. I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's terribly ironic. Mm. Um, and then in order just to find your, your way um, to a greater point of clarity where you could cope maybe with the world in a way that felt right to you.
1: Well, I was never political about the Vietnam War. Um, my motives for participation were not patriotism I was lost I wanted a few answers before I died and I thought maybe combat would provide those that's what I signed up for and I always held that in my mind you know it's not anybody's fault it's my choice even afterwards and all the chaos and the mess of uh, uh, federal government and who made money and on and on and on. In 81, I, I went to work in the refugee industry with Vietnamese refugees, boat people. It was healing I felt more comfortable with foreigners. and I know it was all in my mind. Who knows what they thought of me. Uh, than I did with my own American public. And um, if you were sincere and you tried to help, that's all they cared about. That's all, all they saw. And um, if you're sincere and you try to help walking down the street here... Everybody thinks you have an agenda, right? Almost everybody. And that wasn't the case in <clears throat> these deeply traumatized individuals who needed a job, needed a lodging, needed to learn English, on and on and on, which I was very good at providing because I was highly motivated just like the village life. But it was different, you know my measurement of success as a service provider was never to see the client again. That meant everything was okay. And, um, so I was highly motivated, just like in the village. I had skill sets that I didn't have there and knowledge of manipulation and sales and my own countrymen and how to get things done. And uh, to this day, I, I still have that skill set. All you need is a place. All you need is a topic that people are interested in. All you need is some advertising. A bit of a uh, curriculum or agenda or program. And if you build it, they will come. For example, our little poet poetry group. Yeah, this, it's still working. So we got good. a we got a free place. We got an ad in the paper. We got some other poets to call other poets, and we're cooking. Yeah,
0: we are so cooking. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Uh, the poetry, having poetry come back and a poetry group come back into my life, is after years of just being, actually most of my life, my poetry has been private. Um, I did some workshops, of course, in college and, and um, poetry workshops, but it's just so different to not have it be in an academic environment. Um, so I'm really grateful for the space you hold and, and the poetry. And I'm wondering, as a way to celebrate the writing, celebrate the stories that you've been sharing with us today is for you, I said you said you had a poem for, about your childhood journey um, yeah. Or maybe there's another one there that's speaking to you. Um.
1: Well, I, I do have a poem I'd like to read. Uh, yes. Uh, this was written 2,000 years ago by a Roman legionnaire who's fighting abroad, as most of them did for many, many years. And it goes like this. We had been told, leaving our native soil, that we were going to be defending the sacred rights conferred on us by so many of our citizens. Settle overseas for many years and see... And our presence and many benefits brought to us by a population in need of our assistance and our civilization. Sound familiar? Still going on. We were able to verify that all this was true. And because it was true, we did not hesitate to shed our quota of blood and to sacrifice our youth and our hopes. We regretted nothing But whereas we over here are inspired by this fame of mind, frame of mind, I am told that at home, factions and conspiracies are rife, that teachers flourish, and that many people, in their uncertainties and confusion, lend a ready ear to the dire temptations of relinquishment, and vilify our actions. I cannot believe that all this is true. And yet recent war- wars are showing here pernicious each a state of mind could be. How pernicious each state of mind could be. And to where it could lead, may haste to reassure me, I beg you, Tell me that our fellow citizens understand us, support us, and protect us as we ourselves are protecting the glory of the empire. If it should be otherwise, if we should have to leave our blood-drenched bones on these desert sands and in vain, Then beware the anger of the legions. Marcus Flavius, centurion of the second cohort.
0: That's really his poem. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Nothing's changed. (laughs) Beware.
1: Yes, but that doesn't happen in America. You know, it's the veterans who should be pissed off. Instead, after time the American man who has had only one meaningful, fully engaged, self-validating, heroic moment in his life. In this case, war does not want to relinquish and diminish the memory of that experience by seeing it clearly, and perhaps in political terms and begins to nostalgize and wear old jackets and hats with insignia and regalia and misremember and celebrate veteranhood. And some Vietnam vets, for example, even believe we, quote, could have won the war if the politicians had supported us, which was impossible. Most men thinking that's the most exciting and deeply meaningful experience they'll ever have will never match it. Even when children come and love comes and they choose to remember it in a way that they can tolerate the past. That it was good and they were men. and it shall never come their way again. So the veterans should be on the streets storming the barricades, but whose barricade and for what reason, I have no idea.
0: That was some deep, deep, uh, deep soul speak there. Mac, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been an honor to uh, sit with you and have this conversation.
1: Well, something is happening here that seldom happens. Now, I'm approaching 80. I've had many adventures and meaningful ones. And I've been to war and I've been wounded twice and I've been decorated for valor. And I was a good Marine. And I loved the men and boys in my group, but I do not love the Marine Corps. How often does an old man get asked to talk about those times and tell his story by another American who's sincere and knows how to listen. I guarantee you, for veterans, it hardly
0: ever happens. Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guests, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.